a blessing from the Lord to be here with the saints at Prairie. I don't know if you think of yourself as saints in, uh, I think it was the last song that our brother, brother Alan led. There was a verse there that says that we're the children of God by faith. And I think it's also very true that oftentimes that use of the word saint, and it's been influenced because of the Catholics making saints of dead people, but oftentimes uh, viewing ourselves as saints is something that we have to take for granted because, or to, to, to understand that by faith simply because God calls his children saints. And it's something that is a high calling and honor to uh, consider that. Just a little introduction this morning, or actually yesterday, I was doing something with a pitchfork and I hurt my back. I did a compound turn and it kind of got better, and this morning it was all right, and I brought my belt around the right side and it shot pain in there that I didn't know whether I was going to be able to preach this morning, and I have been begging God for the ability to stand here, and so far it's been good. Uh, God is allowed to let us wince and, and, and hurt in the pulpit, and that doesn't mean that he's not faithful. And so if I do cringe and turn red in the face, it'll, it'll pass, I think. I may have to sit down, but just, just an explanation for that. Though our outward man perish, the inward man is renewed day by day. And I look across this audience, I see maturing, I see some of you aging like I do. And I just pray that that inward renewal is as defined and uh, unarguable as that outward decay. Uh, we desire to see growth, and I know age comes on us somewhat slowly at times, sometimes more rapidly in, in specific instances. But I pray that that's our experience, that we're being renewed in our inner man, and the world around us, and particularly our brethren in the church, can see that. I invite your attention to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6. I have somewhat of an unusual text this morning, and it's because this is the last message that I preached at home. I preached through chapters in the Bible, typically, and it causes you to preach on texts that you otherwise wouldn't. I've entitled the message this morning, Supreme Christ, question mark, or Supreme Court, question mark. I don't think you here at the Prairie Congregation are in danger of taking one of your brethren to court and just suing them at the law or seeing to it that they get thrown in jail. And yet I believe if we wait to preach on this subject until that's an issue, we've waited too long. And so the purpose of preaching this this morning is for us to consider how we deal with our differences and how we relate in a way that this will never be a part of our congregation. This shouldn't have been a part of the church at Corinth. And I think as we look at the, the solutions to these things, we won't see this take place. I will also quickly say that this message spoke to me probably more than anybody in our congregation. I, I, I didn't ask them all. And I think there will be people here that can relate to this message most of us wouldn't sue our brother at the law, but we would in our minds think that, yeah, well, you are not going to have a relationship with me until you, in essence, come across this church floor on your knees and kiss my feet. We might not say it that, that boldly. 
But I think there are times that we put people in prison, so to speak, as far as our relationships with other people, and we do that without going necessarily before a justice of the peace. But I think uh, it's amazing how a bitter, a bitter root in our hearts will take seed to where I don't believe that's out of the picture. I grew up in a setting where there was a family that lost, tragically lost a loved one to an accident. And sometime after that, they took the person who caused that accident to law and sued them because it was the only way that they could continue to maintain the lifestyle that had been uh, begun there, uh, at least from their perspective. And so lawsuits aren't unheard of in our settings, but I, I think we want to have God's view of that. Let's read verse 1 through 11 of 1 Corinthians 6. Dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Here we have that word saints that shows that the local body has saints in it. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world should be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you. Because ye go to law one with another... Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not, ye, be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. May God bless these words to our heart as we look into them further. And I believe verse 11 particularly shows us how we can be those saints that are called to, to this work of being uh, judges. That word judging in our society and even in our churches has become a very negative word. And I know there is negative aspects to judging. But God calls us to judge righteous judgment. And I think when we fail to do that, we are going to have to be calling on judges that are not righteous. They are not people that have the wisdom that's called for in this passage. And while we may not feel qualified to be saints, maybe we don't feel qualified to judge. I believe it's the enabling, it's the washing, it's the cleansing that takes place to enable us to properly address issues that come into our settings. This setting is a matter of litigation where someone was bringing a matter that was a church issue and we're not given the details. I don't think we'd need to know the details. But church issues were finding themselves in earthly courts. And as I said before, there are extremes to this and some uh, examples that are not as extreme. But I think there are times when there are rifts in our brotherhood 
that people in earthly settings find out about it and they have no business knowing. Uh, it happens when we're talking to the neighbor. It happens when we're in the store shopping or whatever it is. That while it may not be the judge that's learning about these things, I believe our neighbors talk. And I don't think we need to be so worried about our reputation as we're worried about the reputation of Jesus Christ in these matters. And when we closely identify with Jesus Christ, then I believe our reputation will be affected by that as well. The other thing that I found interesting in this, and you, you can throw this out if you choose to, but there seems to me that Paul went from a, a subject of dealing with taking matters to court that shouldn't be there, right into dealing with a moral decline in sexual immorality that was rampant in their society and was even a problem in their church, if you would uh, notice the chapter 5, he was dealing with that, of, of perversion that was worse than what even the heathen were involved in. And I think that's, that's not new to, to my experience. As I look on, people who claim Christianity oftentimes are involved in perversion that's even worse than the heathen. If you have a form of godliness without power, then there is going to be means of satisfying carnal desires that, that go beyond even what the worldly people do. But Paul went to addressing these two subjects hardly without even taking a breath. And I think, I wonder, whether there's a connection between the overloaded court system in our day and age and the immorality that's so prevalent. People that are willing to do whatever they need to to get what they want and get it right now. And I believe the same lack of fulfillment that happens when people turn to perversion for, for satisfaction is also the case when someone goes and sues, particularly their brother at the law, to discover that there wasn't satisfaction when that's all said and done. And so I think this, this connection between the court system and control, out of control lusts have a, a direct connection. I'm not familiar with old plays like Shakespeare and all those things, and I don't even remember what the play was, but the Greeks and the Athenians were known for their readiness to take a, an issue to court, much like the, the Americans are today. In a particular play, there were two individuals, and they were trying to find out where Greece was on the map, and the one pointed to the other and says, it's right here. He says, ah, there's got to be a mistake. I don't see any lawsuits taking place right there. And that, I think, was the case in the time of, of Paul writing to these individuals. As people that were so prone to take their, their matters and, and by the force of law get what they want. And I know that we live in a society like that, and I think we are affected by society more than we would like to believe. That when there's a means of me getting the thing that I want, oftentimes I'll take advantage of that. And I think the level that we do that in small things will determine whether or not we will find ourselves in a situation similar to this. A society that's driven by its natural inclinations and desires is a declining society. And I believe that there's a downward descent, and I talked about this a little bit before, that leads to heightened desires. I think you have a person that is, has their desire unmet, oftentimes will just the, the desire will get stronger and stronger and just become unsatisfiable. 
And so people turn to perversions and, 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 and greater desires, which ends in self-destruction. And when I say it ends in self-destruction, that's only the physical side of it. A person that has been driven by their desires, whether it be the want for more, the want for materialism, or the want for immoral satisfaction, uh, that will end in everything from disease, but ultimately there is, there is a destruction of the spirit of man. And I think we live in a society much like that. And when we fail to deal with those kind of things in our churches, it, it will also be the case in our, in our church settings. Paul says that it was a shame to speak of the things done of them in secret, and I think it's wise that we not go into a lot of detail speaking about those things. There are people that feel like we have to expose the perversion by talking about it in public settings. I don't believe so. I don't know that we... It is right, and I think we in the ministry in particular need to address these things thoroughly so that they do not become reoccurrences. And I think we're all aware... Of, of that need in our settings. Uh, I believe Brother Dwight, I was told, spoke on that subject, and I want to try to, to listen to that message. I believe it will be helpful to me. God has ordained civil law to keep order in society, and they possess a physical power to a measure to, to cause that to happen. When I talked about a decline in society, I think it's an it's a indication of deterioration in the church, when the church begins to look at the power of the court system with longing. And I think there's a couple ways that we can begin to look at the power that the court has in a longing way. First of all, if we see it as, as a, a legitimate means to get what I want. But I think a step further than that is when we feel like if we were put in position that they are in, we can use our understanding of the Bible to somehow influence society around us. And I believe it's an indication of deterioration when we have a society that looks at that power and thinks that that's something that I ought to have either for my benefit or else to accomplish God's purposes. I don't know if you're familiar with the book Pilgrims in Politics by Michael Martin, but he throws that, that concept under the bus and drives over it multiple times. And if you have any question in your mind as to whether or not we have any business as Christians influencing society through the power of the government, I, I would highly recommend you to read that. There's a power that's higher than that of the government, and it's, it's necessary that every one of us as Christians have, and that's the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. The power of the resurrection, the Bible calls it, and we need to have that power in the church. When that power is alive and evident, I don't think we're going to look with longing and think, well, that's the power that I need and then I can get what I want for the church or what I want for my family, what I want for myself. The power of the resurrection will change this society. And we as Christians hold a power that's much greater than any judge, much greater than any army, much greater than any president. And when we see that as something that I just wish I had that and I could get what I want... It's an, in, it's an indication that we have deteriorated spiritually, and that's the case with the, the Corinthian church. We talked about a faith that subdued kingdoms. 
The power that raised Jesus from the dead subdues this kingdom. And there was a problem with a million-man army against about 500,000, I think it was. And I think that's the kind of odds that we have when we think that we can somehow calm our desires. We look at the drug addict. Those people, they, they have a, an army to conquer because they have a desire that's greater than their own ability to deal with. And I believe that that which causes divisions and uprisings and fights in the church that could end up leading in court comes by something that's stronger than us. We have a desire, and I, and I think some of us, uh, some, some individuals are able to somehow keep a level of morals in their life without the power of the resurrection, with the power of will. But I believe it's faith in Jesus Christ that when I give up something that I deeply desire, that God is able to give me something better than that. And sometimes He'll give back the very thing that I had to give up. But I believe the power of the resurrection is the solution to the problem that I'm addressing this morning. I believe that when we go to the earthly powers and try to employ them to get our way on earth, that it it proves our lack of power, the, the lack of the power of God in our lives. And I think it also demonstrates a competition against God. I think those are serious matters, uh, particularly when you when you look at uh, it's evil to go to court, but bigger than that, we have a problem of, of an individual that doesn't have the power God intended them to have and is actually in competition with God. There are things that we as individuals possess as, quote, rights, and that's a, that's a discussion that can go on. We, uh, as a family, had a lot of children together, and they had to share a lot of things together. And children have in their minds the idea, well, well, I had this first, or he set it down for a little bit, and I, and now it's mine. I have, I have rights to that. That's not just children. That happens in adults. That happens at the times when when inheritances get settled. That happens. It happens in a lot of things, both with material things as well as things like respect and dignity, and, and I have rights to those things. There are things I think that are legitimate, that we can expect, they belong to us. If we buy a house, we, we have the, the, the legal right to that. Now I believe there are legitimate desires, and I don't intend to go into all the details, but everything from desire and intimacy in marriage, the desire to eat food, God created us with those desires and they're right. Along with that right and that ownership, he also gave a means of satisfaction for it. And so I think when we are, are yielded to God, those, those things, those desires, those rights, the, they have their legitimate place. But everything that is a right or a desire of mine has to become subject to a greater law and a greater power than the civil government. And that's something that God himself becomes the Lord of those things. If I'm going to become a possessor of the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, I believe every right, even my just right and every desire, even holy desires must become subject to the sovereignty and to the timing of God. And I think when we're willing to patiently wait 
and particularly in a church setting, there are things where where a right will be taken away from us. We can become, uh, there's a potential for us to become greatly offended. And yet, when, as we talked about in our Sunday school lesson, when we have a faith in the sovereignty of God, we recognize that when He gives something to me, He can, He can maintain it. He can make sure that that stays, quote, mine if He wants to, or He can remove it. I think way too many times, if we were patient enough with God, we would see that He took something of value from us to keep it from destroying us. I think there are many things in our lives that are legitimate, that are even holy, that when they get out of place, that they actually can become the destruction of an individual. I'll allow you to do that in your own, in your own setting. There's things about being an effective preacher that can actually destroy a preacher. It can destroy his family. It can destroy his testimony. And so everything that we have, that we hold as valuable, that we think is important in life, must become secondary. And we must have that trust in God that allows him to be sovereign and do things in his own timing. I spoke of possessing the power of the resurrection And I think a lot of times when we think we possess something, we become somehow like an independent administrator of it. That this has something that I can somehow use at my own discretion and for my own good and well-being. But I think when the power of the, when we possess the power of the resurrection, it possesses us more than we possess it. There's a concept that Paul brought out in here that I don't have an awful lot to say about because I can't talk knowledgeably about it. He, he says, don't you know you're going you're gonna to judge angels? Well, I don't know about you, but that isn't just the given that, we, that that's the forefront of our mind. But yet the Old Testament talks about that and Daniel talks about the fact that the saints will judge angels. Uh, there's things that in the future that we will we will do things that we don't fully understand today. And that concept of being not an an independent administrator of something, I think, will be the case. And it's clear in my mind that this judging will take place in something different than what we know as this life. And that's brought out in verse 3, I believe. The last part, Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life. And so I think it's suggesting that this will take place in another life. But I see it very much the same. Christ is going to be the judge in that setting. And the individual who is united with Christ is so one with him that that which he does becomes an extension of Christ. And so the judging that takes place in that time will be Christ's judgment. And I think in a spiritual sense, for us to properly judge matters of the church requires the same thing. That we be one with Christ. And he goes on to talk about that later in this chapter where he talks about, know ye not that you become one with a harlot? That you can't unite Christ with a harlot? But then he says, but ye, he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And so I'm content to leave that judging thing in that category and not take it a lot further unless you have some insight beyond that. But I do believe that we are called to be judges now. And I think if we fail to judge righteous judgment in being united with Christ to where we share His desire and have His wisdom, I don't think we're going to be qualified to judge in the life to come either. 
And so it's important that we not just kick these matters and say, well, that's none of my business. In the local church, I believe it is. And I think we do need to be uh, understanding that some things that in the broader church aren't always our business. And yet it's Christ's business. And I think there are times that we must speak truth and judge righteous judgment even in those settings. Consider with me a little bit this desire that Paul had that the life of Christ or that the power of the resurrection turn to Philippians chapter 3. The power of the resurrection was something that Paul wanted that power more than anything else and it wasn't a power that he wanted to have so that he could bring other people under his control but he recognized that if that power wasn't present within him he would be unable to do the will of God, in particular in the high calling that he was given as an apostle. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read 7 through 15. I want you to pay attention in verse 15. He talks about, he talks about a mind that he, was, that he wanted, a desire, an, un- an overall encompassing goal in life. And then he talks about and then being otherwise minded. And I think that's what we want to be aware of in our congregations. Is if in some way we lack a desire that is not in harmony with this longing desire to possess the power of the resurrection, we want to be made known of that. And I think a lot of times we become made known of that when we rub shoulders with our brother in a close setting. God shows us that we want something more than the power of the resurrection. Philippians 3, 7 through 15. But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Notice his value system. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. And be found of him not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I'd already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus." Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Do you think Paul could have gone to the local church, the local court, in the the city of Corinth and got what he wanted here? Absolutely not. And it's the only means by which we can attain to that which God created us for. God did not create us to have a farm and then be able to buy three farms for our three sons and make sure that all those things are in place. God did not create us for that purpose, although sometimes that, that ability is given to us. 
And yet there are there is a power here that will cause us to be effective and approved of God that will affect not only this life, but will affect all of eternity in our relating to God on that level. And we need that kind of a vision, that kind of a, of a concept, a, a, a picture in our minds of what we are here for, and we are not going to find ourselves turning to these other means to accomplish a desire that has a dead-end streak after we've pursued it all our lives. He talks about apprehending that for which he was apprehended and that which Christ apprehended him for. It was a two-way street. God has called each one of us, and while we're called to different levels of service, every one of us has a place in the body of Christ in which God has called, called us to, to operate. My mind went to the time when Paul appealed to Caesar. And there was a time that, that because of, of the circumstances he was in, and I, I asked the question, did Paul breach this, the, the principles through, through that action? One of the things that I see clearly different is it wasn't an issue brother to brother, although it was an issue between Israel and Christianity. And I don't believe that was true brotherhood. It was something where there was clear evil against against him. And I don't want to in any way say that we have a right to go to court. Right now at home we're dealing with something that involves going through our town council. There's times that I have a desire in my heart that I know what the right thing is for them to do. And if they don't do it, I'm afraid I'll lose my peace more than I ought to. And I think there are things that the court system is used for because it's a proper procedure for something legal. We believe that Paul's motive in which he appealed to Caesar for was pure. Paul's overriding desire was that he could go out and preach the gospel. And because of this imprisonment, it was hindering him, although it wasn't. We have epistles today that we read and are able to benefit by a lot because God in His sovereignty put a man in prison to where he had to write instead of go and speak personally, which is by far the better way. And yet it was something that was preserved for us. There was a time in Paul's life that he appeared before Felix and Festus and they basically told him, Paul, if you wouldn't have, appeared, if you wouldn't have appealed to Caesar, you'd be a free man today. We would release you. So I think there are times that we can, in our humanity, look back, well, if we'd have done it this way, would it? God in His sovereignty knew all those things. God directed the Apostle Paul. And I think God is even able, when we make mistakes and do wrong things and repent of them, to still have the desired outcome. And so, rather than judging an Apostle, I would ask the question, should we be appealing to Caesar? I think, in, in, as we look at this whole picture, and particularly seeing how God could have provided a way without that appeal, we ought to be slow to appeal to Caesar. Although there are times that I think where we come together as a brotherhood, when we, we check our own desire, we check different possibilities as brethren, looking at that together, there may be a time in which we, we may seek the counsel of a lawyer. We may... Uh, once again, not to force our own carnal will, but to have an understanding of what, what is the law in these cases. And God give us wisdom in knowing how to deal with those things as far as, as functioning in society as a church or a, a charitable organization. I don't know what your stand is on that, but there's times where we have to appeal to the law 
or to a lawyer to find out what is proper. But I think we need to be careful that we, we separate the church from the state. But most, most important is that we don't look with longing at their power. And I think it indicates that we are lacking in a power that's so much greater when we appeal to that. Verses 4 and 5 are verses that are verses that have caused debate among theologians and even in our day and time, I think. Talks about those who are least esteemed, calling those individuals to, to the, the court, so to speak. And I believe that that's another mistake that's made at times, that we just simply say, well, I don't have any rights, I'm not going to try to appeal these things, I'm not going to appeal to anybody. Matthew 18 clearly states, and also this passage, that when there's differences between our brethren, we go and we try to address them. And we address them before the saints. And too often we just let them bottle up till they get to lawsuit status. Or we, we save them for when we need them. I think uh, it, it's been the case for me, there's times that I have aired my grievances and when I was all done, discovered that I was the one at fault. And we fail to do what the Apostle Paul strongly desired in Philippians here is to, if we in any way be otherwise minded, God will reveal that to us. And the way that God does that is when we follow His plan and procedure. That we take these things that become potential offenses and divisions in the church and we bring that to the individual. And then when there's not peace resolved with the individual, we bring that with another brother. And then we bring the church. And the church makes a judgment. When we fail to do that, I think we put our churches in a position where we will appeal to government authorities to solve church problems. The NIV says those who are least esteemed. Uh, no, it doesn't. Where am I seeing this? I'll catch that in just a little bit. I ask the question, least esteemed by who? By the state? By the church? Uh, those are all questions that when it comes to the rubber meeting the road and, and, and who do we appeal to for those things become real questions. I do believe that the principle that when you look for a man of God that does not have a bias in the situation, that you always have a better outcome in those things. And I would say that from the perspective of appealing to earthly judges, they don't have biases about the church, but neither do they have godly wisdom to deal with them. I think it should be someone that doesn't have skin in the game. And particularly, it's, there's people that choose not to have the bishop address the sensitive issue because there is skin in the game in those things. And a lot of times if, if things get dirty and a lot of mud gets on that individual, then it affects the whole church in ways that it, that it need not. I said the NIV said, uh, men of little account in the church. And I think from that translation I would get the idea that it would be people in the church that, that aren't necessarily popular or of, of a, a great reputation. In verse 5, it says that this individual should be a wise person. Once again, I, I hear those words like saints and wise and things like that, and I, I think it's got to be somebody else. And yet it's clear in the book of James that if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And I think you're more likely to have an individual who has godly wisdom 
about a particular situation when he had to go to God and ask for that wisdom rather than if you have an answer man. And to me, I think that answers some of this question of what it means to be those who are least esteemed in the church. I believe that when we have a desire for God to show us where we are in any way or otherwise minded, I believe that we are going to hold that least esteemed brother's judgment of greater value than any court decision that could be ever made in the, in the law of the land. And I really believe that when we have a system of values like I'm describing in this message this morning, there will be power in the church to where a decision will be made and that body will be able to, to follow in one unit. How many times there'll be splinters of individuals who, who over the years have become bitter and offended will fall off the wagon and we, we must grieve for them and seek to bring them back on. And yet I think the reason why people appeal to places like judges is because when a decision is made, the body has to do it regardless. And I think when there's a desire like the Apostle Paul preached or, or prayed for there in, in the book of Philippians chapter 3, there can be power in decisions that the church makes that is going to be totally absent when we as a body do not have that value system and that desire that comes through the power of the resurrection. The first part of verse 7, Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you. And I didn't write down what the NIV said, but as I studied these the translation and study this phrase out. I think what Paul's saying is you have a big problem here, but you have a problem that's even worse than that. It's a big problem when, when a brother goes to before a judge to plead his cause, but it's a greater problem. You have a problem between a man and his God. It's a problem that's not just relational, it's very spiritual and it's very eternal in its consequences. And so I think when we find ourselves, whether it be just shunning the brother to make it cold for him until he, until he gets his act straightened up, or whether we've actually taken it all the way to the court system, there's a problem between a man and his God. There is utterly a problem among us. A problem that's big enough that we have provisions to do something about it. Someone has made the observation that the doctrines of separation and nonconformity and non-resistance are twin towers that stand together, and when you have one fall, the other one falls with it, much like what happened in 9-11 there. But in this setting, you have the expression of non-resistance being violated where a brother is going to law against brother. But the reason why that tower fell down is because there was a separation and nonconformity issue that caused it. And I think that's very true. When we have a worldly value system, then we are going to use worldly means to maintain that value system. And that's going to cause us to rise up and take up arms, whether it be a gun or whether it be something a little bit less physical that causes to make sure that the, the precious little toy that I got in my hand doesn't get taken away from the people that I rub shoulders with. When we as individuals are willing to lose something of value to us, and I would just like us to make our own application to this, whether it be personal dignity or whether it be possessions, 
in a setting where I'm willing to lose that in order to be obedient to Christ, in order to gain my brother, I believe that's something that I would call a lose-win situation. A person that's willing to lay down his rights, a person that's willing to lay down his desires, while he lost something, in the end he becomes a winner. I believe that was the very essence of what Jesus was doing in the garden. He was laying down his life, and it wasn't an easy thing for him to do, even though he's the Son of God. Not my will, but thine be done. And I believe when we are willing to do that, it shows that we believe that though I'm laying down my life, so to speak, God is able in His power to give me a resurrection that's beyond that life. And we will never experience the power of the resurrection unless we have died to ourselves. It's a simple procedure that if we are going to win spiritually, we must be willing to lose. And I'm not talking about going out and just playing a life of a loser to where we're just punishing our body and just giving everything away that we, that, uh, you know, somebody takes it away and we'll actually create pain for ourselves. We cannot be made righteous through our own denying of self. And yet as we live our lives, when we lose, By faith, we can know that we win. When we defend our rights, it becomes a lose-lose situation. And what's sad, the winner in that equation is the enemy of our souls. And when we as brethren uh, stand up for our rights against one another and and begin to jostle and fight in in whatever expression that takes, that is a lose-lose situation every time. And another loser in that situation is the reputation or potentially the reputation of Christ. And when we choose to hang on to that which we believe belongs to us, I think that's, that's one of the stronger tragedies of a setting like that. But I believe it's also very true that when we are willing to lose to win, there is a strong potential that that can turn into a win-win situation. And I think it was Christ's willingness to lay down His life. There were people that mocked Him at the cross, but when He actually died and they saw the way He died like a lamb, even those hardened soldiers said, truly, this was the Son of God. And I believe that nothing will change even a bitter brother like the power of the resurrection being demonstrated in a very practical way right before His very eyes. My mind, as I was studying for this, went to the setting there with Abraham and connived and and, and it produced an Ishmael as he was trying to gain that son that God promised and yet God finally gave him the son and it was a very precious son to him. And as Abraham lived his life and, and enjoyed that expression of a son, a day came in which God says, I want you to offer that son in sacrifice to me. And I think that was the hardest thing that Abraham ever did in his life. It was the most precious possession. Though he was a very wealthy man, Abraham loved his son, I think, more than anything anything that he possessed. And yet I believe God wanted that very thing, even though it was legitimate, even though it was holy, He wanted it to become his own possession, and secondarily, Abraham's possession. And I believe the principle is true that as we live out our lives in the church, when we are able to lay our Isaacs on the altar, and to describe that, it's that which God has 
has given to me legitimately is something that he wants me to use. As I'm willing to lay that down, God is able to use that as something I possess rather than something that possesses me. And I think it is so true that the more we are given, the more things of value, and even spiritually, the more potential there is for that to possess us rather than something that we possess and use for the glory of God. There is also reality in which there are things that we have gotten, just like Abraham, that they are Ishmael's. And there are times that I've asked myself, is that an Isaac or is that an Ishmael that God is trying to take away from me? I don't know that we always need to know. We always just need to hold it like this and let God take it out. And I think if he put it back in there again, it was probably an Isaac. And if he kept it, it's a good good chance it was an Ishmael. There are plenty of things that to some may be legitimate, but to me, it could be destructive. Do we have faith in God? Do we have a trust? Do we have a love for a power? Do we recognize a power that's greater than any power that's in the world? And is it our burning desire to have that alive and growing in our hearts and lives?